Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Loving oneself is not without controversy. How much more than the means by which we put it into practice? Arguably, it is the practice, not the theory, that puts the rubber to the road. When asking the question, is it biblical to love oneself, an equally, if not more important question is, how does one love himself according to God? A few ideas can be mined out immediately. Worshiping oneself, holding fast to one's life without sacrifice or compromise is certainly not what God has in mind. Vaishali Kastir wrote in a 2019 article that when people ask her, who is your favorite person, or if you were stranded on an uninhabited island, who would you want with you? She unashamedly and publicly pronounces, myself. There is no love story greater, deeper, or richer than the one we have with ourselves, she says. That is, perhaps, one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. Moreover, I can tell you that there is one greater love story that climbs more mountains, leaps more bridges than the love I will ever have for myself. And you already know the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about the love story of Jesus Christ, crucified Savior, a sheep to the slaughter, while I was still dead in my trespasses and sins. If you can write a greater love story than that, you should come and see me. Let me get your autograph. You're about to be the world's best-selling author for the next 2,000 years. There is a way we can love ourselves publicly and unashamedly if only we will follow the path biblically. And the benefits that await us will be far greater, deeper, and richer than any story we could write about ourselves. How can we love ourselves according to God? Well, number one, I'd like to suggest some of me but more of others. Adopt the mentality that says, some of me, but more of others. He was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Mark 4, verse 38. You know, it's mere speculation that Jesus would have bought into Mike Liddell's 1999 My Pillow advertisement. But friend, I don't think he would have had a problem sleeping on one. He slept, Scripture says. He slept comfortably on a cushion or a pillow, some translations say. But notice the contrast that immediately comes to light. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Shame cast upon the Savior of mankind. Why? Because he is caring for himself. Well, we're all sitting here in fear. Our boat is being tossed to and fro and he's dreaming in paradise. Jesus did love himself. He cared for himself. When he was tired, he slept. When he was hungry, he ate food. When his bodily life was threatened, he stepped out of the way. But like many disciples of the past, we still today mistakenly create a false dichotomy between loving self and loving others. We make loving others and loving self an ultimatum, when in truth it is not a matter of choice, one or the other. But it's a matter of sequence, a matter of priority, a matter of striking balance, and oftentimes a matter of timing. Jesus' response is a teachable moment as any. He arose and rebuked the wind, Scripture says. He did not hit the snooze button like Jonah did, neglecting to call upon his God and give assistance to his neighbors. Jesus acknowledged his neighbors. He arose and he acted on their behalf. 
A healthy love for oneself doesn't have to be rude or seek its own to the neglect of others, but as a matter of balance and of proper timing, one can love themselves while continuing to love others. Some of me, but more of them. There's another fitting example of this found just two chapters later. Jesus is preaching from city to city. Luke's account of the incident in chapters 8 and 9 appears to chart the entire day out from the time they were in the windstorm on the lake to the time they arrived on the other side and cast out a legion of demons to the time power went out from him and he healed the woman with the flow of blood to the time he raised up Jairus' daughter, though they ridiculed him for saying she was asleep to the time when he then gave power to his disciples to do the same, to the time he received news before the end of the day that John the Baptist was dead. It is at this time when Luke says the day finally began to weary away. And Jesus says in Mark 6.31, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. But wait, the people, they've gathered, see them departing, and they're hungry. They've had no food to eat. Send them away, the disciples cry. Give them something to eat, Jesus says. Some of me, but more of them. That's how we love ourselves. Not like Martin Luther would teach. You completely cease loving yourself and you forget yourself. Come aside, Jesus says. Rest a while. But not like our friend Vashali Kastir would say either. That we fall in love with ourselves and we put ourselves ahead of others. Send them away? No. Give them something to eat, Jesus says. It's a matter of flexibility. It's a matter of priority. It's a matter of sequence. Love God first. Love people second. But love yourself too? Yes, you are a vital part of this love triangle. Believe this. Practice this. It's God approved. Now, let's move from a relational focus of love for oneself to a more individual focus of love for oneself. Which inevitably leads me to the second important practice. This mentality, if you will that you should adopt if indeed you will love yourself as you ought. Number two, some of body, but more of soul. In these passages of scripture, it becomes abundantly clear, the early uh, passages of Mark's account of Jesus' ministry, Jesus places far more emphasis on the spirit than he does the flesh, and yet not to the complete neglect of the body. Mark describes in Mark 3, 7 that Jesus withdrew his disciples to sea and there was a great multitude following him there. And Mark describes their number again in the very next verse, a, a great multitude, he says. You get the idea that there was a great multitude. And there's a reason for it, as you would expect. Mark goes on to describe how the great multitude were pressing in about him to touch him and be healed. So Jesus finally tells the disciples, prepare a small boat lest they should crush him. Mark explains. And from there, it's likely that he proceeded to teach those parables of the kingdom as we read in Matthew 13. I want you to notice from this passage of Scripture two things. Jesus gave emphasis to the spiritual, but not to the neglect of the body. And vice versa, Jesus protected the body, but not to the greater neglect of continuing his ministry to the soul. He kept preaching. He kept casting out demons. And all the while, he positioned the body to the best of his ability to preserve it and care care for it and carry on God's work, but that it might not be crushed or desecrated, demolished. Friend, you can love the body and still love the soul greater. You can love the soul greater and still care for the body. You not only can, but you must. Lest like Jesus, you be crushed and you're unable to do either. The brother of the Lord said it clearly, the body without the spirit is dead. The moment these two entities separate is the moment we cease to live upon this earth and our work here ends. 
This can be a hard balance to strike. In truth, it's not 50-50, but it's not 100-0 either. Unless our salvation and death is on the line, of course. Then most certainly we would say be faithful even to the point of death. Revelation 2.10 Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. And again, Jesus asked, Matthew 16, What will a man give in exchange for his soul? But more often than not, the life we live in the flesh and spirit is one of 70-30. It's 80-20, even maybe 90-10 here on earth. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 8, bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. That's, that's not a 100-0 statement. That's a 90-10 or an 80-20 statement. It's a little body, but a whole lot of spirit. But A whole lot of spirit, but still a little body. It, this is the way to loving oneself in relation to self. It's an uncomfortable one, but the matter is pertinent. News and statistics have been running rampant about obesity in America, laziness and overeating, especially since COVID days. Some number is running as high as the 60 percentile, even among teenagers and children, highly unusual numbers for a time of life that's constant in activity and energy. Brethren, we are the richest nation in the world, but that doesn't mean we have to live like it. The inspired proverb says, have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Proverbs 25, 16. Ironically, our, uh, we as a nation have found a way to fill our bellies to the point of vomiting, and at the very same time found a way to be so spiritual, spiritually starved that a 12-year-old child living in the streets of 19th century London has more Bible knowledge than graduates who are coming out of American theological seminaries. And then we will whine and bemoan a sermon that's longer than 20 minutes in the church while we sit and gorge ourselves with snacks and foods all the day long. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day, says the psalmist. Your law is my delight. Psalm 119. Scripture teaches some of the body and more of the soul. And then finally, I want to encourage you to love yourself in a manner that's pleasing to God by adopting this final mentality, this last observation we can see from especially some of the early passages and uh, some of the middle passages of Mark's account of Jesus' ministry. Number three, some thoughts negative, but more thoughts positive. And by negatives, I don't mean sinful or evil thoughts, but negative thoughts, thoughts that are not always the most pleasant to think about. And everyone has negative thoughts from time to time. Even the Savior said on one occasion in Mark's account of his ministry, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. That, in some respects, is a, a negative thought, a negative statement, but an acknowledgement of reality. And Jesus did that. We remember how Jesus on one occasion said, when the Son of Man comes, on, comes back, will he really find faith on earth? This is especially true when Jesus met his opponents in Mark 7 and he bluntly acknowledged them as hypocrites, honoring God with their lips but having hearts full of vanity and pride. Jesus acknowledged the realities of life, the negatives of life. And Jesus proclaimed that more would be lost than would be saved. But I also want you to take note and observe that more often than not, Jesus maintains a positive and hopeful demeanor throughout his ministry. Don't be afraid. Only believe, the Lord tells that ruler of the synagogue. 
The child is not dead, but he's sleeping. Mark chapter 5, 36 and 39. Later, Jesus tells his disciples that whatever house they go to as they minister, stay there. Don't depart, at least until they're no longer willing to receive you. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. And, and then later, I love this statement, when Jesus meets his disciples on the sea, and of course they're afraid, he says, be of good cheer. It's I. Do not be afraid. Mark 6 and verse 50. Be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. Yes, be of good cheer. The Lord is here. Why do you fret? Why do you worry, Jesus says. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, as we meet the end of Matthew's account. Think positive thoughts. Put away the negative thoughts. The Apostle Paul said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. And then again, just a couple verses later, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the God of peace will be with you. You know, studies suggest that people have about 70 thoughts or 70,000 thoughts every day. 70,000 thoughts and 93% of those thoughts were found by researchers to be about yesterday. And guess what? Of those many uh, thoughts that we have, 80% of those thoughts were found to be negative. So, Much of the time we spend our days thinking about yesterday and we don't think good things about yesterday. Case in point, a young daughter tells her mother, Mom, you look beautiful in that dress. The mom's immediate response to her daughter, Ugh, honey, I look terrible. I don't look anything like I was when I was 16. A son tells his father, Dad, you're so strong. The dad's immediate response, Son, I used to be so much stronger, able to do so much more when I was in my 20s. We beat ourselves up. We talk ourselves down. We, we constantly uh, contemplate and think about our past and the mistakes we've made. We fill our hearts and minds four times out of five with negative thoughts and affirmations. And we soon project these affirmations on others as well. We talk them down. We beat them up. We criticize them in the privacy of our homes because it's what we do to ourselves. We make others feel small because we're even smaller on the inside. You know, I do believe in the sin of Toxic positivity. Yeah, you you heard me right. The sin of toxic positivity. I do believe in the sin of insincerity, in other words, and disingenuous comments that are made just to flatter and garner another's favoritism. One man even observed that the love we often have for ourselves is not even true. It's, It's simply the erection of certain defenses we build around ourselves to protect ourselves from the hurt and shame we might feel for ourselves. Or maybe the hurt and shame we have from others and we're unwilling to acknowledge maybe some of the truths that they tell us. And so we kind of build a disingenuous uh, and untrue uh, world and vision of ourselves. But in truth then, we don't really love the true version of ourselves. We love only a glorified version of ourselves built on truth denials and hidden shames. I'm not encouraging us to build and imagine a world that's built on pretense and insincerity, insincerity and pretense of ourself and others. But as it has been observed before, sincerity and positivity are not ultimatums. Reality and hope, truth and love, these are not choices we have to make one or the other. We can and we must and we, and we do, we can 
coexist together because all these things are from God. And God has shown us through Jesus how we can live in them both. You know, I can live in a dark world, in a bleak world, while I still saturate myself and others in positive thinking, both now, right here, and in the future. And some thoughts negative, yes, but more thoughts positive. It's the only way to love self in a world that truly hates itself and hates others. Loving oneself does not go without its many debates, its ongoing controversies. But I think if we live by these biblical principles, how can we go wrong? It's not all of me, but it's not none of me. It's not more of me, but it's still some of me. And if only we can learn to strike the balance according to God's way, then we will learn to live God's way. A happy way, a joyful way, the only way. The greatest love story ever told? I, <laughs> concerning ourselves, no, I don't think. But a part of the greatest love story it will be? Yes. And at the end, we will be able to say, I did this for the God whom I love. I did this for the people whom I love. But I also did this for me, the person God created with love. And him I will nourish and I will cherish also, just as the Lord does his church, which is his body.